Well, what do you do with that? Um, it's one of those pieces of scripture that um, if you're doing your read through the Bible and a year plan, it is highly skippable. Um, it, it, some have called it a yawner. It's geography and history. Uh, Deuteronomy is full of this kind of stuff, and it also with a big, a lot of legal section that we're eventually going to get into. And let's be honest, at first read, your conclusion is this has absolutely no direct application to me whatsoever. Um, you know, the, the commentators uh, don't help me a lot as I look through this stuff because they zero in and focus in on the minutiae they're telling you exactly what the route was they were traveling and what these people's name really means. And, you know, um, I feel like they lose the forest for the trees. And you find yourself saying, where is God in this? Where am I in this story? How do I make sense out of it? And that's really what we're going to try to do today. Focus on who is the God who's behind this history and what is he asking of us as his people? Um, And that way we learn why God is worthy to be worshipped and served, and we learn how, as his people, we are to worship and serve him. So if you will open your Bible up to that passage that Jonathan so bravely read, um, Deuteronomy 2, we'll look at the first 23 verses today and see what God has to say to us about himself and us as his people. Let's, Let's pray as we do that. God help us. To, to read and understand your word rightly, to see your glory in the pages of this history and to see our own selves in the lives and directions of your people. Um, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So to make sure that we, we, we make sense out of it, let's, um, let's start with a little bit of that history and geography and see if we can put this in context. Deuteronomy is a series of about three sermons from Moses getting a new generation ready to enter the promised land. The first sermon, which we are in the midst of, is recounting the recent history of their people, primarily the previous generation, although in today's passage it shifts to the generation that's about to enter. Um, There's a fellow uh, named Raymond Brown. He summarizes what Moses is saying this way. I think he does a good job. He says, The beaten and dejected rebels were driven back into the bleak wilderness. A grim collection of closely related sins, forgetfulness, disobedience, perversity, and presumption had robbed them of better things. It might all have been so different. Because they had ignored the word of God, the rumors dwarfed the realities. Imaginary dangers became more persuasive than dependable promises. The cowards outnumbered the heroes. During the years that followed, many hundreds of those sad unbelievers were carried to their graves. Every funeral was a renewed testimony to the seriousness of sin. Yet their bitter defeat by the Amorites, we talked about that last week, became a fading memory and gradually a new day began to dawn. It was time to begin again. So Moses is readying these people to enter the promised land. He's doing it for this new generation by rehashing and recounting their history, the history of their failures and of God's faithfulness. 
But right now, in this section today, he is going to focus in on their very recent history, the journey of the people through three regions that were populated by three other peoples. Let me show you where those uh, regions are. Nobody exactly knows how this journey unfolded. It's, It's a little bit difficult to unfold, but what is clear is that today, they've been circling up here around Kadesh where bad things happen, okay? And they were sent south away from the promised land. Today they get to turn northward, which is a good thing. And they're going to go through three, the regions of three different peoples. Edom, who's called Esau in our passage. The Moabites and the Ammonites. And when they get up here, they'll be right on the edge of the promised land. So this is the closing chapter in their journey as they are ready to enter the promised land. And Moses is revisiting it. And he underscores for them the directives that God gave them concerning those three lands that they were to pass through. Here's God's directions to his people. Verse 5 of our passage. Do not contend with them, the people in the land. For I will not give you any of their land, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on. So God here is emphatically saying no to their taking of any land. Three times he says it. No, you may not have their land. No, you can't have theirs either. And no, not even a f- big enough to set your foot on in this thing. And he's doing that. There are two reasons in the text that will come out that he's doing that for. One is God has given sovereignly this land to another people. It's theirs. Okay. Secondly, these three peoples are all kin to Israel, distant kin. And there's a protection for that. There's a, a neighbor, a brother love that protects them from going to war with their kin over this land. So that's kind of the history and the geography lesson for today. Now let's figure out who is the God behind this journey and what does it mean for us as his people to follow him. There are three ways that God shows himself in this journey, three portraits that I want to underscore for you. The first is this. He's the king of all the earth. Um, The land is God's to give to whomever he pleases and to take from whomever he pleases and to withhold from whomever he pleases. In each of these regions, as he moves through it, as people move through it, the lands of Esau, Moab, and Ammon, this is made explicit. Um, Verse 5 again says, Do not contend with the people there. I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession, God says. I gave it to those people. You move into the second region, which is Moab, and the Lord says to Moses, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. You go into the third region, the Ammonites. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. In our story, the great king of all the earth is parceling parceling out the land of the nations as he sees fit. Um, he's making a provision for sure for Israel in a promised land that they will eventually get to. But 
in these three territories, we see him making provision for three other nations as well. The people of Esau, the people of Moab, and the people of Ammon. Um, it's interesting. If you look closely in your Bible, you notice that there are uh, some pretty rare in the English Bible. Um, there are parentheses in your, in your text. Verses 10 through 12, a lot of your Bibles, they're in parentheses. And verses uh, 20 to 23, they're in parentheses. It's like the translator saying, just skip this part, okay? Just, just skip right over. Um, but those parentheses, those bracketed parts, they're there to teach us something. Look at the second one. Look at verse 20. Um, and Jonathan bravely read this better than I can. It says, it is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, and a, a people great and many, and tell us the Anakim, but the Lord, tall is the uh, Anakim rather, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in the, their place even to this day. And it goes on, talks a little bit more, but the phrases that I want you to see in there, the Lord destroyed before them the Ammonites. See, this is the history of the land of the Ammonites and how it came into their possession by God's doing. These little parentheses are showing us that the Lord is the Lord of all the earth and he has been moving nations and peoples around so that it belongs now to these people. Um, it is their land by his sovereign will. It's not just land for Israel in our story, important as that is. It's land for these other nations as well. Um, God is so powerful that the nations dwell where he prescribes them to dwell. That's, that's the king of all the earth. According to the Psalms, um, Psalm 47 Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Isaiah would say it beautifully in Isaiah 54. He says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. The God of the whole earth. This last verse comes from um, uh, the beginning of one of my devotional times this week. I have a list of the names of God that I use every day as a prompt to worship God. If you want to join me in that, this week, if you go to this the sermon page on our website, and click on the sermon notes. That list of the names of God will be available for you in a Word doc if you want to improve on it for me or as a PDF if you just want to use it. But um, these names of God are so revealing of who He is, but especially He's the God of all the earth, the King of all the earth who reigns over the nation. He is giving land and He is taking it away. That's who God is showing himself to be in this little geography lesson. Okay? That's why he's showing it to us, so that we acknowledge that he's the king of all the earth to this very day. Now, he's also showing himself to be a guide for his people. And very practically, 
Israel is going wherever God tells them to go. I mean, it's like he is at every turn. It's, our passage starts that way. Moses says, we turned, journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Remember on the map, they're heading south. As the Lord told me, and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir, and then the Lord said to me, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough, turn northward. They go north. A couple verses later, God says, now rise up and go over the brook Zered, and they do. A couple verses farther down, today you're to cross the, the border of Moab, and they do. It's like God is with them, directing their every step along the way. And it's not... Um, it is not some distance, distant guidance system. God is with them on this journey directing them. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, You shall purchase food from them, the nations you pass through, for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. See, an entire nation was rendered homeless and wandered for 40 years, and they never lacked anything because God was their guide, caring for them every step of the journey. He was with them. This is the great hope of the people of God. It's our great hope. Isaiah says... They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. The Psalms, again, in Psalm 32, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 48 says, you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. See, God is revealing himself in this little story, this little journey story, this little geography lesson. He's showing himself to be king of all the earth and the good guide of his people who is with them. There's, there's one other image um, that I want to draw to your attention, and that is that God is also showing himself to be his people's judge in this passage. Um, you look down in verse 14 and 15, and we see how severe a judge he is. It says, uh, the time for our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. And the language is severe there. They perished. They perished, it says twice. But even more powerful is the idea that the Lord was not with them. He was against them to destroy them. That's severe judgment. And so this fighting men of the generation previous had forfeited the full experience of God's promise in the land by their disobedience which is a very sobering thought for our own disobedience. At what cost do we disobey this great judge? What, what, what of his promise will it cost us? So, 
in this ancient geography and history lesson, God is showing himself to be the great king of all the earth, a good guide for his people, and a very severe judge. It's all in there, and it all comes out to us through this little uh, skippable portion of Scripture. But he's also going to teach us about what it means for us to be the people of God. Um, What is God teaching Israel by saying no to them? Not once, but twice. Not twice, but three times. Each time they enter a land, God says no to their desire to have that land. It's interesting. When God says no to them, um, he is really teaching them to obey him in one of the hardest ways. When God says no is one of the hardest times to obey him. Um, And these no's that God is saying are very similar to a no he gave the previous generation back in chapter 1. You remember it. Um, They had been unwilling to go into the promised land because they were afraid. And then they realized what they'd done and they say they're going to go into the land now. But the Lord said to Moses, Say to them, Do not go up and fight, for I am not in your midst lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country, and the people would not obey God's great, difficult command of no. But this new generation, whose story we are reading now as they go through these three um, people's lands, each time they are obeying God. God says no You homeless, wayward, itinerant generation with nowhere to to build homes. No, you may not stop in this land. No, you may stop in the next land. No, you may not stop in the next land. And I can't imagine how hard it would have been for an entire nation who'd been homeless for 40 years to obey God in this thing that they wanted very much. That they, in their eyes, they could simply have taken. The people were afraid of them. They are learning to obey their king. In essence, they are learning to fear him and his judgments and trust him and his provision and his care for them. So here's the question How full is your obedience to God? Will you not even take a footprint's worth of something that God has said no to you about? When your king says to you in the book of Ephesians, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. How full is your obedience? Is there not even a hint of sexual immorality in what you watch or do? Is there not even a hint of greed in what you buy and keep? How full is your obedience when God speaks to you? When when your great guide says to you again from Ephesians, be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do you never go to bed angry and unreconciled? Never? 
when your judge says to you, let no corrupting or unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you still complain? Do you still gossip? Um, I am under almost comical conviction uh, from, from this text. Um, our kids are involved in sports, and um, uh, the, the sport that I'm most knowledgeable about is basketball. It's the sport I played most. And, uh, and that there's a coach who excels at incompetence in his coaching like none that I have ever seen. And I I can't watch the game without complaining to my wife, who also is knowledgeable about basketball, and we share in this uh, sin together. No unwholesome talk. (laughs) No corrupting talk out of your mouths. I mean, the standard for them was not one footprint of disobedience, not one footprint of land. What is your standard of obedience to your great king, the king of all the earth, who loves you? You know, when we eavesdrop on this geography lesson, God is challenging us to be completely obedient. So do you fear disobeying God such that, if, that you don't want to live a step outside of his will because you know what you will suffer for it? Do you trust him so that when he says no to what looks so very good to you, what you think you need so desperately, and he says no to you not once, not twice, but he says no three times, will you still trust him and obey him that his ways are best for you? Do you believe even then that his call to obey is purposeful, even if it's just to strengthen your faith and your obedience? Um, There's a a book called The Checklist Manifesto that came out, and I read an article about it. Um, and one of the things that they explore in there are um, contract demands uh, by celebrities that they said were just ridiculous. For instance, uh, the band Van Halen, the rock band, uh, each contract insisted that a bowl of M&Ms be provided backstage, but with every single brown M&M removed. And, and the guy in the article says, who knew such a bunch of hard rockers could be such divas? Um, but he says, but wait, there was actually a good reason behind the clause. Um, he says uh, that in this book, The Checklist Manifesto, they quote from lead singer David Lee Roth's uh, memoir of It shares the story behind the M&Ms. This is what he says. Roth explains that Van Halen was the first band to take huge productions into tertiary third-level markets. He said, we'd pull up with nine 18-wheeler trucks full of gear where the standard was three trucks max. And there were many, many technical errors, whether it was the girders couldn't support the weight or the flooring would sink in or the doors weren't big enough to get the gear through. The contract writer read like a yellow pages because there was so much equipment and so many human beings needed to make it function. 
So there was just a little test buried somewhere in the middle of that phone book. It would be article number 126, the No Brown M&M's Clause. And he says, when I would walk backstage, if I saw a brown M&M in that bowl, he said, well, we'd line check the entire production and guaranteed you'd run into a problem. The mistakes could be life-threatening. They say in Colorado, the band found that the local promoters had failed to read the weight requirements and that the staging would have fallen through the arena floor. Um, Your great king is making great demands of obedience upon you. It is his right, and it is for your good. How full is your obedience? God, through this story, is teaching his people. He's teaching us about what it means to obey him when he says no, even when he says no repeatedly to that which we long for. Now, in a related but a more subtle way, God here is calling his people, calling us to be content with what he promises us as well as what he withholds from us. Um, Again, back in verse 4 and 5, tells Moses, Command the people, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on. Um, Be very careful. Why did they need to be so careful? I think it's because they would be horribly tempted to take the land at least to try to take the land Um, they were learning to trust to wait to be content with the provision of God for them at this point in their journey David Paulison has written an excellent article on Psalm 131 it's called Peace Be Still And it describes the subtlety of our discontentment. He describes it this way. He says, of course, um, I just want a little respect and appreciation. I want the home appliances to work and the car mechanic to be honest. That's pretty normal. I want approval and understanding. Is that too much to ask? I want satisfaction and compensation for the way others did me wrong. I don't want much. If only I had better health a little more money, a more meaningful job, nicer clothes, and a restful vacation, then I'd be satisfied. I want a measure of success, just a bit of recognition as an athlete, a beauty, an intellectual, a musician, a leader, a mother. I want some control. Who doesn't? I want to have more self-confidence, to believe in myself. I want, well, I want, and then he puts it in capital letters, I want my way, okay? I want the goodies. I want glory. I want God to do my will. I want to be God. Doesn't everybody? Listen, listen to the counsel of the psalm that he is writing about, Psalm 131. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. 
Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And he's using the imagery of a child that's weaned as one that'll sit with contentment on its mother's lap, not one that's restless, always trying to eat, always anxious for what it does not have. A weaned child sits contentedly. Are you content like that? Content with what you have because you hope in the Lord, your good guide? who is with you? Does that describe you? Content. Content with what God offers. Or are you striving for things too great or too marvelous or things that maybe are just off limits? Maybe they're outside the limits of your budget or they're outside the limits of your marriage or your non-marriage. Be very careful, Moses says. Be very careful. Do not contend for these things. The Lord will not be with you in this if you do. Do not even take a footprint's worth of these things. Be content. Learn contentment as you fear and trust the Lord. Now, there's a third thing um, that God is teaching to his people. Obedience and contentment, and he is teaching Israel that they are not the end-all of God's plan. God has a bigger plan than Israel. Um, To be sure, Israel is God's chosen people. Deuteronomy is going to say it repeatedly. The Bible says it over and over again. Deuteronomy 10 says, The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, Israel, as you are this day. But in our story, we see God protecting the nations, caring for the nations. Not just Israel, but all these other peoples are benefiting from God's care as well. The king of all the earth forbids Israel to take the land from these nations because he has given it to them in his mercy. And it's interesting, back in verses 6 and 7, you notice that when they go through their land, they can't take anything. He says, buy it. Now, this is a huge economic boost for those people. If you take the numbers literally in Exodus, there could be a couple million people coming through town uh, buying your food and your drink. This is a huge economic boon to the nations they're passing through. God is using Israel to bless these people as they pass through, not to take from them. And that's been their story ever since they began. Back in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. They were blessed as a people to be a blessing. So it is with the people of God. I wonder, would would your neighbors describe you as a blessing to them? If I went to your neighbors and said, you know, are are Fred and Shirley a blessing to you? What would they say? Would they say, who? How would they respond to that? By your care for them, by your friendship, by your hospitality, by your generosity, by your prayers? Are you a blessing to your neighbors? How about bigger picture? Are the nations blessed by your family? 
here at North Wake, it's evident that God wants us to be a blessing to the nations. I mean, if you haven't figured that out yet, just go stand in front of that map in the lobby for a few minutes. And we, we commissioned Danae this morning to go and bless the nations with the good news of God's Son. Is your family part of that? Are you, are you giving towards that? Are you praying towards that? Are you engaged surrounding one of our uh, families we've sent to other nations to care for them and encourage them? Are you, are you willing to travel to those nations? Are you a blessing to the nations? Well, on what first looks like a really skippable yawner of a passage, uh, God has some very important things to show us about who he is and who he wants us to be as his people. That he is worthy of our worship and that there are ways he, he requires us to worship him in obedience and in contentment um, with great joy as we do these things. Let's take a moment and let's bow before our king and we'll close our service with prayer. Lord, even by our posture, 